industrial complex on a global level or whether it's the NRA on a neighborhood level, the profiteers of violence push fear like a gateway drug. It's predicted that we will see starvation, mass global starvation, if we have an exchange of even a couple dozen nuclear weapons. The idea that if there's a nuclear war, it will stay over there, you know, which Lindsey Graham is reassuring us. Well, guess what, Lindsey Graham? It doesn't stay over there because global nuclear winter comes home to us all. What our communities want from your office is to acknowledge climate change is real and it is time that we invest in 100% renewable energy. Dissociate ourselves from fossil fuels and revisit, renew and revitalize recovery plans from an equitable lens. Our communities are not victims. Our communities are strong, resilient and deserve better. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance and alternative news from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And what we're doing today is getting the facts straight, correcting the reporting and the spin on important news coming from D.C. Players in the National Football League are protesting police terror, including the murder of innocent men, women, and children with impunity. Other issues, the flag, the anthem, the uniform, or this country's wars, while fair game for critique, are not the specific issue at hand. But this fact does not prevent Donald Trump from using a lie to whip up the lynch mob into a frenzy. Lynch mobs have historically been whipped into a frenzy over lies, and Trump even throws in the Confederate buzzword heritage to feed this frenzy which has been joined in, of course, by Fox News, by NASCAR, and a preacher, Robert Jeffress, who says that the football players are lucky that they are not shot in the head for protesting. Left intellectuals want to avoid comparisons of today's United States to Nazi Germany, but this week's performance by Trump is as close to a Hitler speech as he has come, simultaneously demonizing and slandering a national minority, encouraging economic violence against them, and then not denouncing physical harm hinted by others against them. Now, even though the flag, the anthem, the uniform, or this country's wars are not the issue for NFL players, we all still have a First Amendment right to make such a protest. Later in the show, we'll hear just some of the voices from No War 2017, a conference which brought together hundreds of activists from around the country at a time when the Trump administration filled with generals rather than civilians, is linked to violations of international law, deadly bombings of civilians in Yemen, and threats to Venezuela and North Korea. I'll also be speaking with media critic Janine Jackson about, among other things, the huge multi-billion dollar military budget increase at a time when the United States is not even taking care of hurricane victims. All that is coming up, but first our headlines. Now, as athletes in the NFL and other sports continue to join in protests for racial justice, thousands are expected to converge in D.C. on Saturday, September 30th for the March for Racial Justice, which also includes the March for Black Women. 
Chantel James spoke to organizer David Thurston about the march. In the wake of Charlottesville, there was a, an intense sense that action needed to be taken to demonstrate that this far right-wing neo-Nazi proto-fascist uh, horde of folks were rallying around the Trump presidency do not represent the majority of the opinion in this country and to build um, a confident challenge to the rising resurgence of white supremacist ideas in this country. Participants in the March for Racial Justice and the March for Black Women are lining up Saturday, September 30th between 10 a.m. and noon at Lincoln Park on Capitol Hill, then marching to the Capitol, then to the Department of Justice, and ending on the National Mall between 4th and 7th Streets. On Capitol Hill this week, it was disability activists with the group ADAPT that helped to halt the most recent attempt to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. The Graham-Cassidy bill would have caused millions of people to lose their health care and virtually eliminated Medicaid for low-income people. Senators Rand Paul, John McCain, and Susan Collins joined Democrats in opposing the bill. In its latest debacle of the Trump administration related to relief for Puerto Rico, members of Congress are reportedly being blocked by Trump from using military aircraft to fly to the island, which is in desperate straits after being hit by Hurricanes Irma and Maria. Congressional staffers are being told that space on the planes is needed for the relief effort. Meanwhile, storm survivors on the mainland are seeing their situation turn from bad to worse, with many Texas residents still living with the residue of flooded toxic Superfund sites, toxic emissions, and some renters in Port Arthur, Texas, even facing eviction from their homes. On Wednesday, a delegation of storm survivors occupied Senator Mitch McConnell's office on Capitol Hill demanding that he acknowledge that climate change and fossil fuels make hurricanes stronger. Jessica Ronhell, an undocumented survivor of Hurricane Harvey in Texas, spoke in McConnell's office about the impact of climate change. We are here to demand to stop the denial that climate change is not real. Me standing here with these three other women is living proof that climate change is real. My mother's broken down home is living proof that climate change is real. Our children in the hospitals because they have fungus in their feet because they've swallowed this contaminated water is living proof that climate change is real. We demand change. We demand 100% renewable energy because we will no longer stand for this. We are here to stand and speak for our people who are unable to speak at the moment. Organizers of the occupation included 350.org, Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Services, and New Florida Majority. And in culture and media, progressives are taking aim at the new PBS Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam because of what they say is its twisting and omitting of facts about the 20-year U.S. invasion, which resulted in the death of nearly 4 million people, including 58,000 U.S. soldiers. Now, in a book scheduled for release October 3rd, a group of mental health experts say that there is, quote, overwhelming evidence of profound sociopathic traits, end quote, in Donald Trump, as well as malignant narcissism. Both of these disorders, the experts say, are the cause of other observable symptoms in the president, including persistent loss of reality, paranoia, bullying, violent impulses, low self-esteem, lying and cheating, rage reactions, impulsivity, and lack of empathy or compassion. 
They add the possibility of dementia or Alzheimer's disease from which Trump's father suffered. For the book, the health professionals decided to re-examine the so-called Goldwater Rule, which is no diagnosis without personal examination and permission, saying that it was their moral and civic duty to warn during Trump's presidency. The book is titled The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. And finally in D.C., the international organization Appeal, Inc. is holding a Founders Day celebration to raise money to open a Black-owned and operated credit union. The celebration will be held Saturday, September 30, 2017, 5 to 10 p.m. at the Thurgood Marshall Center, 1816 12th Street in Northwest D.C., Organizers say that the credit union will include online banking and will facilitate financial and economic empowerment, focusing on communities of people of African descent. More information is at appealinc.org. A-P-P-E-A-L-I-N-C dot org. And those are headlines and happenings. When we come back, more on how culture and media is shaping our world with media critic Janine Jackson. We'll be right back after some music by J. Cole. Stay with us. American hypocrisy, oh, let me count the ways. They came here seeking freedom, then they end up owning slaves. Justify the use of Christianity with saves. Religion don't shit, there's too much ego in the way. That's why ISIS is a crisis. But in reality, this country do the same. Take a life and call it righteous Remember when Bin Laden got killed, supposedly In the hotel lobby after a show Was noticing these white ladies watching CNN Covering the action They read the headline and then they all started clapping As if LeBron had just scored a basket at the buzzer I stood there for a second, watched them high-five each other For real? I thought this was thou shalt not kill But police still letting off on the sick and field Claiming that he reached for a gun They really think we dumb and got a death wish Now somebody's son is laying breathless When I was a little boy, my father lived in Texas Pulled up in Toyota, drove that bitch and get was Lexus Put my bag in his trunk and headed off for Dallas Out there for the summer, feeling just like I was Alice Lost in the wonderland when sick and deal suffering Just like they was back home, and that's wrong So now I'll find the government They see that I'm struggling And they don't give a fuck at all, and that's wrong, yeah Welcome back to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org. Now it's time for this month's extended culture and media segment with Janine Jackson, host of Counterspin and director of FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Welcome back to the show, Janine. Happy to be here. Well, On the Ground tried to take a, a little break in August, but then Charlottesville happened. But you and I have not spoken for this segment since July. So let's start with the, the topics that you want to highlight that Counterspin has covered in recent weeks. Well, one, we talked about the how President Trump is trying to sink the nuclear deal with Iran, which is a terrible idea, and media are guessing, well, he just wants to undo whatever Obama did, or, you know, maybe he's just trying to please Saudi Arabia. But it's a kind of playing games with international deals that is really disturbing. And other countries that are, that are part of that Iran deal, you know, as my guest, Murtasa Hussein from The Intercept said, he said, we're giving other countries the idea that the U.S. just can't do diplomacy anymore. And, you know, if you make a deal with the U.S., they may just decide, hey, we don't want to abide by that, even though we said we would. So... That's something that's not getting, I think, the attention. It's certainly got some attention, but not the kind of attention in terms of the impact that it could have going forward. We also talked about something that is just mind-blowing to me, which is that the 
Defense Department has just got themselves $700 billion for the military. And this went through without a hitch. And it's just so shocking because I know listeners will know anytime we talk about food stamps or we talk about single-payer health care, media are all full of, well, where are we going to get the money for that? How are we possibly going to afford that? We, Bernie Sanders says we can do free college, but where's the money going to come from? And here we have the Defense Department getting more money than they actually requested, you know, than Trump actually wow. requested, $700 wow. billion, dollars, and there's nary a peep. There's just nothing. In fact, the New York Times story on it didn't quote anybody who was opposed to it to this incredible gift to the Defense Department, more than they even asked for, and nobody said, where is this money coming from? Nobody asked those questions. So it just is something to keep in mind that when media talk about deficits, and in fact when politicians talk about deficits, they don't care about deficits, because if they cared about deficits, we'd be having that conversation around military spending. Uh, I'm going to be doing a show just this week on Puerto Rico, and I mean... It's hard even to know what to say. The devastation is just so, you know, staggering. And what I am going to be talking about with my guest, Ed Morales, is, you know, we all know, and we saw this with Harvey in Texas, we saw this with Irma, we know that they're natural disasters, but they are made worse by very unnatural factors that have to do with with class and with poverty and with who has access, you know, who's able to get out and all of that sort of thing. So we're going to be talking about that with regard to to Puerto Rico. And then one final thing, I mean, all of the shows that that have been from the past month are are up on fair.org and transcripts as well that folks can see. But what I talked about last week with a man named Deidre Asante Muhammad from the group Prosperity Now was the wealth gap, the racial wealth gap, because people may have seen this news that, oh, incomes are up. It's the Census Bureau has never seen incomes rise so much, and it sounds as though things are moving in the right direction economically. But what this report, which is called the Road to Zero Wealth, what this report makes clear is that there is a tremendous gap in wealth among blacks and Latinos and also Asian Americans and Native Americans and white people. And that wealth is actually a much better indicator of economic well-being than income. And the thing about it is, even when black people get a college degree, even when they have high incomes at their job, the wealth gap still exists. And what this report says is if we don't change the policies that that drive the wealth gap in, I think it's 2053, black households, the median black household will be have a wealth of zero in just that soon a time. So it wow. really is a thing where they, the report describes it in no uncertain terms as we are driving ourselves to a racial and economic apartheid state. So that's important news, and it got coverage, but something like that needs we need to be talking about every day. You know, I, I saw that story, and... When it did get coverage, it received coverage in a very unsophisticated way in terms of understanding economics. And I think the way some media covered it, it fed into the idea that black people, Hispanic people aren't working hard. 
aren't deserving, you know, aren't doing the things that we need to do to earn and to produce wealth. And that, you know, basically it's our fault. So in other words, when it did receive, yeah, when the report did receive coverage, the report that you mentioned, it, it was not covered in, a, in any way to really help people understand how wealth is built and how, how wealth comes from, from is passed down in families. And if, if your family is starting from a point of enslavement and another family is starting from the point of reaping the benefits of slavery or, or other types of race privileged means of getting wealth, then that makes all the difference. <laughs> so Exactly. It's ahistorical, number one, to say that if, if black and Latino families would just, you know, value education, you know, or work harder at their jobs, that's, it's not only simply false, it's ahistorical because the way the middle class in this country was built, it, it wasn't just kind of, you know, natural. It, there were policies in place, you know, and home ownership, which is one of the most important assets. But we know for a long time those policies, those post-World War II policies were segregationist, were racist. Black people didn't have access to them. And that was how, exactly. you know, a big part of the way the middle class in this country was created. So yeah, we still have job discrimination. We still have income disparities. But wealth grows from wealth. And we also have a tax code that gives more breaks to wealthy people. So wealthy people are able to increase their wealth through the tax code as well. So it isn't about individuals. And I think that's what this report, although, as you say, not the coverage of the report, but the report itself makes clear that even when you account for education, even when you account for income, the wealth gap between white people and everyone else, people of color in this country, still exists and is getting worse. And by the way, the zero wealth by 2053, that's if we don't make things worse. And we know in this administration, things getting worse is, is always, uh, always possible. Right, right. I, I, I would like to actually have that report posted somewhere on our website, and, or at least link to it, because uh, I'm sure it will bring into account the tremendous loss of wealth during the economic crisis that uh, our communities still haven't recovered from. You know, millions of, hundreds of thousands of families losing their homes. And that is your primary source of wealth, not income, but wealth that you can pass on to your children. Well, I have had a few media <laughs> issues that I wanted to, to bring up in our segment, but I'll confine it to three. Well, Sputnik Radio, which is related to RT, the um, Russia programming, uh, started here in D.C. So right here on the FM dial, we have Sputnik Radio. And I don't know if, if it's because of the proximity now. A few weeks ago, it was reported that Sputnik Radio and RT uh, are being investigated by the FBI and that they may be required to register as foreign agents. And this has been disturbing to a lot of people in progressive media because regardless of what you think about those two outlets, they do provide a lot of unheard voices, especially on the left, uh, in terms of programming. And the fact that they would be targeted in this way is really kind of uh, raising a few eyebrows, to say the least. The second is that I guess I've been looking at a series of, of topics, the way they've been covered by the media. Uh, starting with Charlottesville. And so 
when I looked at the way Charlottesville was covered, when I've looked at the way that the recovery efforts after Hurricanes Harvey and Irma, now Puerto Rico, and even up to this most recent controversy about how the NFL protests are being covered, I noticed that the media basically covers it in the way of how has Trump responded to these things and and what is Trump doing as opposed to covering the issue itself? You know, so instead of me understanding more about how white supremacists had been operating in Charlottesville, how they, how they had been hanging around for weeks all summer, really instigating problems within the black community there, how the community had really rallied around to get rid of these monuments on its own, a lot of the backstory wasn't there. And, and similarly, and the kind of uh, equating of the white supremacists with Antifa, the anti-fascist demonstrators, you know, we had some of those folks on the, on the show here who had gone to Charlottesville. So immediately that controversy turned into what Trump is saying, what Trump is doing, as opposed to an investigation of the actual activities of white supremacists and the, their impact in Charlottesville and the racial climate in Charlottesville, what's happening to the people in Charlottesville. And just right up to today, I mean, when Colin Kaepernick and Michael Bennett and other athletes have protested against police brutality, police murder, racial injustice, that's not really what's being explored in the coverage. It's what Trump is tweeting and what Trump is saying as opposed to exploring the issue. So those are three of the issues that I really have a real problem with. And, and I guess finally, when you look at the coverage of the Korean War, you know, it's, it's being covered in a vacuum. Um, there's no mention of the fact that the Korean War has never even been officially ended, that ever since the armistice with North Korea, we have heavily militarized that area. We are constantly showing our strength, our so-called resolve, they said recently, by having these really antagonistic war games that, um, I shouldn't even call them games, but drills that are kind of uh, rehearsals for basically taking out North Korea. Again, I should say, because we totally bombed the country into obliteration. And and there's no mention of that. There's no mention of our provocation. There's no mention of our unwillingness to have diplomatic dialogue with North Korea, but only their response to our belligerence. So I have just found all of this just, um, just kind of like, you know, looking at the media, it's just looking at a, a, a crazy show. So that's... <laughs> that's that, that, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. I, if, if I could say, you know, the, it's the, the RT and Sputnik stuff is disturbing. Now, Russia Today RT, it is, it is state-sponsored. You know, it comes from Russia. And that means it's a, it's a different perspective that people might want to get. The same way when you listen to the BBC, you're getting a perspective from England. You know, um, I think Americans can handle that. You know, grown-ups can handle hearing perspectives from other countries. But the other thing to remember is... RT gets 30,000, less than 30,000 viewers per show. That's 0.3% of the ratings for Judge Judy, okay? So the emphasis on that is just is just weird, you know. It is a, it, it gets a tiny fraction of the audience of other media in this country. So the, the fixation on it has to do with just the Russia paranoia that we're, that we're living through at the moment. So there's that. And I, I think... 
the, the focus on Trump and seeing everything through Trump is part of what we call the media's top-down bias. You know, I think it's the, if the president says something, well, that's the angle. That's where your story starts from. And it does mean that important history, important context is missing because you always have to make room for, for Trump's latest tweet. And what I see there also is, you know, when people are talking about Trump's response to, to Kaepernick, for example, Media are, are being critical. Sometimes they're making jokes about Trump, you know, and they think that that makes them look independent of power, you know, because they're saying something critical about Trump. But as you say, when you're not doing justice to the story, you're not showing your independence as a journalist. You're really showing that you're just a stenographer who's going to write down anything the president says or tweets. At the same time as they're, as they're doing this, we have two journalists still who were arrested in the J-20 demonstrations at the inauguration, Aaron Cantu and Alexei Wood, who are facing decades in jail for simply being reporters, for simply covering that demonstration. So of all these mainstream media who are up in arms about RT, that there have been dozens and dozens of stories about, all these media who think they're something because they said something critical about Donald Trump, if they really wanted to show that they were concerned about free speech and the free press, they would be supporting those journalists. And they are not. They're not even taking an interest in them. So there's a test, you know, of independence, and corporate media are failing it. So... Let's move on to our less serious things. It seems like the movie of the moment or in recent weeks has been Step, this documentary about uh, girls at a school in Baltimore. And it's gotten a lot of attention and, and, you know, it's on my list. And if it's still in theaters, you know, folks might want to check that out or check it out when they can on, on demand. But I did see Strong Island, uh, a documentary on Netflix about the filmmaker documenting the murder of his brother. And that was, that's very powerful. And I think in the context of the spate of police killings, police murders that we've witnessed this movie stands out because the police didn't kill his brother, but what we see is how the criminal justice system handled the killing. And this is also on Long Island, a virtually all white criminal justice system, folks who are investigating and actually sitting in judgment about what happened. So that was something very powerful and people might want to check that out. And in theaters, I also saw Dolores about Dolores Huerta, the labor leader, and most recently Battle of the Sexes, uh, the movie that kind of chronicles the rise of women's tennis with Billie Jean King and the epic match between Billie Jean King and Bobby Riggs, who really kind of played up the idea of being like a male chauvinist pig and you know, countering these, you know, hairy feminists, you know. <laughs> I remember that in real time, you know. I, I remember exactly. when that happened, you know. And the funny thing about that is folks said when they were making that movie, they thought, you know, won't it seem silly to folks? And it doesn't at all, you know. It, it, it doesn't at all, the idea that a man would just full out say, men are better than women, men are stronger than women. You know, it was kind of a joke. It was kind of a stunt at the time, in a way. But it still gets at something that, uh, you know, that kind of chauvinism is um, is certainly walking the earth today and, and re-arising, you know. So it turns out to be not so much of a time capsule feeling at all, except for perhaps the, the clothing, you know. 
Right, right. And the hairdos, you know. And the hairdos, exactly, exactly. Well, if I could say in terms of my cultural note, the cultural thing that's made me the happiest recently has been to see Lena Waithe from Master of None win the Emmy for writing, to be the first African-American to win uh, an Emmy for writing in a comedy series. And if folks don't know Master of None, the episode that she won for, which is called, she and Aziz Ansari won for, was called Thanksgiving. And it involves her character, who's very much herself, a queer black woman who comes out to her mother. And it's just, when I saw it, at first I cried. I was just so moved by that episode. I made my daughter watch it. She loved it as well. And so just to see that happen for Lena Waithe and to see the support, uh, I, didn't, I don't have regular TV. I just watched it on you know, the YouTube video of it, her acceptance speech, which was so strong and so powerful, and with her shout-out to LGBTQIA folks and saying, um, you know, what makes us different, are our, is, is, those are our superpowers, you know. I just thought it was such a positive affirmation. It seems sometimes the country's going really full speed in the wrong direction, and at the same time, there we see these positive movements in a, in a better direction, and it, and it gives us all a little hope. All right. Well, that's something new for a lot of us to check out. And the new season on TV is starting... Well, yeah, the traditional new season is starting, so a lot of new shows will be coming on or or be appearing. So we'll check those out. So I've been speaking with Janine Jackson, a host of Counterspin and director of FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. Thank you, Janine. Thank you. was Cold War by Janelle Monet on On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam. And now we're going to turn to just some of the many voices from the No War 2017 conference held in Northwest DC, September 22nd through September 24th. The theme was War and the Environment and started with remarks by activist David Swanson, We'll also hear from activists Tim DeChristopher and Green Party presidential nominee Jill Stein. Welcome to No War 2017, War and the Environment. Thank you all for being here. Uh, 
Thank you for that. <laughs> we already have more applause than Trump's entire UN speech. Uh, <laughs> my name is David Swanson. I'm going to briefly introduce Tim to Christopher and Jill Stein and also speak briefly first myself. During World War I, we should note, the U.S. Army used land that is now a part of the campus we are on to create and test out chemical weapons. Then it buried what Karl Rove might have called vast stockpiles underground, left, and forgot about them until a construction crew uncovered them in 1993. The cleanup is ongoing with no end in sight. One place the Army used tear gas was on its own veterans when they came back to D.C. to demand bonuses. Then, during the Second World War, the U.S. military dumped huge quantities of chemical weapons into the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. In 1943, German bombs sank a U.S. ship at Bari, Italy, that was secretly carrying a million pounds of mustard gas. Many of the U.S. sailors died from the poison which the United States said it was using as, quote, a deterrent, though it did not explain how something deters while kept secret. That ship is expected to keep leaking gas into the sea for centuries. Meanwhile, the U.S. and Japan left over a thousand ships on the floor of the Pacific, including many fuel tankers. I mention the military poisons in the immediate environment not as something exceptional, but more as the norm. There are six Superfund sites poisoning the Potomac River not far from here, and as Pat Elder has noted, they are all military sites. They are poisoning the Potomac with everything from acetone, alkaline, arsenic, anthrax, on down to vinyl chloride, xylene, and zinc. 69% of Superfund sites across the United States are military bases. And this is the country for which this military is supposedly performing some sort of so-called service. What the U.S. military and other militaries do to the earth as a whole is unfathomable, or at least unfathomed. The U.S. military is the top consumer of petroleum around, burning more than most entire countries. I'm probably going to skip the U.S. Army's upcoming 10-miler in D.C. at which people will be, quote, running for clean water. Water in Uganda, supposedly. For a fraction of just what Congress just increased U.S. military spending by, we could end the lack of clean water everywhere on Earth. And any race in D.C. had better stay away from any rivers if it doesn't want to come into contact with what the U.S. Army actually does to water. What war and war preparations do to the Earth has always been a hard topic to get at. Why would those who care about the earth want to take on the beloved and inspiring institution that brought us Vietnam, Iraq, the famine in Yemen, torture at Guantanamo, and 16 years of gruesome slaughter in Afghanistan, not to mention the gleaming eloquence of President Donald J. Trump? And why would those who oppose the mass murder of human beings want to change the subject to deforestation and poison streams and what nuclear weapons do to the planet? But the fact is that if war were moral, legal, defensive, beneficial to the spread of freedom, and inexpensive, we would be obliged to make abolishing it our top priority solely because of the destruction that war and preparations for war do as the leading polluters of our natural environment. 
While converting to sustainable practices could pay for itself in healthcare savings, the funds with which to do it are there many times over in the U.S. military budget. One airplane program, the F-35, could be canceled and the funds used to convert every home in the United States to clean energy. We are not going to save our Earth's climate as individuals. We need organized global efforts. The only place where the resources can be found is in the military. The wealth of the billionaires does not even begin to rival it. And taking it away from the military, even without doing anything else with it, is the single best thing that we could do for the earth. The madness of war culture has got some people imagining a limited nuclear war, while scientists say a single nuke could push climate change beyond all hope and a handful could starve us out of existence. A peace and sustainability culture is the answer. Pre-presidential campaign, Donald Trump signed a letter published on December 6, 2009 in the New York Times, page 8, to President Obama that called climate change an immediate challenge. Quote, please don't postpone the earth, it said. If we fail to act now, it is scientifically irrefutable that there will be catastrophic and irreversible consequences for humanity and our planet. End quote. Among societies that accept or promote war-making, those consequences of environmental destruction will likely include yet more war-making. It is, of course, false and self-defeating to suggest that climate change simply causes war in the absence of any human agency. There is no correlation between resource scarcity and war or environmental destruction and war. There is, however, a correlation between cultural acceptance of war and war. And this world, and especially certain parts of it, including the United States, is very accepting of war, as reflected in the belief in its inevitability. Wars generating environmental destruction and mass migration generating more wars, generating further destruction, is a vicious cycle we have to break out of by protecting the environment and abolishing war. Thank you. I, I want to bring up here someone I've admired for quite a while by the name of Tim DeChristopher. Tim DeChristopher disrupted an illegitimate Bureau of Land Management oil and gas auction in December of 08 by posing as bidder number 70, <laughs> outbidding the oil companies for parcels around Arches and Canyonlands National Parks in Utah. For this act, he was uh, imprisoned for a total of 21 months, which earned him international media presence as an activist and as a political prisoner of the U.S. government. He has used this platform to spread the urgency of the climate crisis and the need for bold confrontational action in order to create a just and healthy world. Tim has used his prosecution as an opportunity to organize the climate justice organization Peaceful Uprising in Salt Lake City and more recently founded the Climate Disobedience Center. He continues the work to defend a livable future. Tim DeChristopher. Thank you for that, for that welcome. Um, thank you all for, for being here for this really important gathering to connect the dots between war and our environmental crisis. Um, it's, it's, I think, an important uh, challenge that we face and, and, and a very timely uh, opportunity to get together and, and connect these dots. Um, it's unfortunately 
very timely as, as we have seen the impacts of climate change on display just over the past few weeks in our country with unprecedented disasters hitting Houston and Florida and Puerto Rico and most of the western United States with wildfires and at the same time while we're, where we're seeing some of the, the worst and most irresponsible nuclear saber rattling since the Cuban Missile Crisis. There's, there's far too many folks in the climate movement right now and far too many organizations that, that are just kind of blindly celebrating the fact that the military is taking climate change seriously. And, and I just saw a headline the other day that said that the military is the only department in our federal government that is taking the threat of climate change seriously. And... And certainly there's, there's some benefit that's uh, coming out of the military connecting some of those dots like between the Syrian war, civil war and, and the climate-induced drought for six years that, that forced one and a half million Syrians off of their farmland and into the cities and exacerbated the, the social tensions that were already there in, clim- in, in Syria. And, and they've, they've introduced the, the framing of climate change being a stress multiplier in, in that climate change doesn't happen in a vacuum. It happens in a world that is already torn by these existing social tensions of, of militarism and violence and racism and xenophobia. And so, so climate change is not really its own crisis. It's, it's a trigger to the crises that we're already experiencing. So that's a, that's a useful perspective. But it's important to, to be questioning when the military is talking about the importance of, of climate security, to question what they mean. There's a fantastic book about this called The Secure and the Dispossessed by Nick Buxton. And, and unfortunately, it's one of the most ignored books in the climate movement. That, that does ask that question of what the military means when, when they talk about climate security. And what they mean is security for a certain group of people from other people. And generally, they mean security from those people that are most heavily impacted by, by the climate crisis, the people that were already in the most vulnerable and marginalized positions in our society. Which is why, since it became increasingly clear that we're not going to stop climate change at a, at a manageable level around 2009 and 2010, we've seen an, an explosion of border fences and border walls between rich and poor countries around the world, not just here, but around the world, particularly the border fence that India built almost all the way around Bangladesh. Bangladesh is a country that has 160 million people, half of whom live at less than 10 meters above sea level. And when it became increasingly obvious that, that we were not going to, to stop climate change at a manageable level, the question became, what's going to happen to those people? And somewhere, someone made the decision, we're going to keep them right where they're at. And they built a partially electrified border fence to keep them there. So that, that idea of the military taking climate change seriously means taking these, these threats seriously and further exacerbating the problems that we're already seeing in our society. 
It, it is my great pleasure to introduce Jill Stein. Jill Stein was the Green Party's presidential candidate in 16 and 12. She's an organizer, a physician, an environmental health advocate. She has helped in fights for campaign finance reform, racially just redistricting, green jobs, and to clean up polluting incinerators and coal plants, cited predominantly in communities of color. In 2006, she transitioned from clinical medicine into political medicine to help heal the mother of all illnesses, our sick political system, so we can begin to fix the other things that are literally killing us. <laughs> uh, very well said. Um, um, among much else, uh, she was part of the recent Solidarity Peace Delegation to South Korea to support the struggle of the Korean people for justice, sovereignty, and demilitarization of the Korean Peninsula. Jill is currently working to support local green candidates in fighting for radical, progressive, sustainable solutions that are critical for our future. Jill Stein. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thanks to all of you for being here tonight, and thanks to you for the, the work that you do, which is so critical. And it's, it's really such an honor to be here with so many of the trailblazers in this movement, which is connecting the dots, the dots between the environment and uh, war, but also with a whole bunch of other things like human rights and, and the plight of immigrants and Black Lives Matter and the Dreamers. And it's, it's such a remarkable time. I think all of us come here now feeling like this is a really unique moment. I sort of feel like I'm coming to the... What? You know, to the Mecca or to the altar or what? I don't know what it is, but I feel like we're all coming here sort of searching for truth and searching for justice from each other to gather strength to meet this incredible moment that we're in right now. And it's a historic moment uh, because it is unprecedented in the crises that are converging right now. But it's also an amazing moment of incredible resistance, which is really sweeping the country and sweeping the planet as people are really rising up like we haven't seen for generations. And that goes from, you know, from the pipeline resistors to Black Lives Matter to the Dreamers standing up uh, undocumented and unafraid. Um, it is the, um, the heroes of Standing Rock, uh, Black Lives Matter again is just now facing rubber bullets again this weekend in St. Louis where it's sort of Michael Brown all over again with another sort of dismissal of a case of police violence. The heroism of everyday people who came out by tens of thousands in my home city of Boston to tell the white supremacists after Charleston that you are not welcome here. And they actually went home. They did go home, the white supremacists, and they canceled their rallies. <laughs> So it's not as though people don't have a moral compass. It's just that that moral compass is not reflected in the choices that the corporate 
bureaucracy and that the political establishment and the media and so many of our institutions, you know, that's not what they're providing us. They're not providing us choices with integrity. So I, I want to move forward here and, and kind of state the obvious, which again has been said already, that that the environment and war are intimately connected. And I would go ahead and assert that war and preparing for war inherently destroys the environment and that the destruction of the environment is a driver of conflict and war. And this conference, I think, comes at such a critical time because not only are those two issues kind of going off the charts right now, but also the overarching paradigm here in which these problems exist, that paradigm is collapsing right now before our very eyes. That paradigm of neoliberalism, of militarism, of ruthless exploitation of human and natural resources, this paradigm is failing. Some call this corporatism, some call it end-stage capitalism. Martin Luther King called it the triple threat of racism, militarism, and extreme materialism. But whatever you call it, it adds up to an utter dire necessity for transformative change because we are all in the target hairs. On endless war, as I think um, David mentioned earlier, there is no such thing as a limited nuclear war. And even a regional nuclear war can and is likely to trigger what's called uh, nuclear winter, which is essentially you, you kick up enough dust and debris into the atmosphere, it filters out the sun to a degree that you cannot produce the food that we need. And it's predicted that we will see starvation, mass global starvation, if we have an exchange of even a couple dozen nuclear weapons, which, in fact, North Korea is in possession of. And the, the idea that if there's a nuclear war, it will stay over there, you know, which Lindsey Graham is reassuring us. Does that ring a, ring a bell to anybody? You know, if there's going to be a war in Korea, it's going to be over there. Well, guess what, Lindsey Graham? It doesn't stay over there because global nuclear winter... Uh, comes home to us all. So there is no ducking out on this. Likewise, you know, the climate crisis is not just over there. Of course, it is much worse over there because of a variety of conditions, but in particular, when the hurricane was coming to Florida, seven million people could get in their cars and evacuate. People can't do that in Bangladesh, even if they didn't have the electric fences around them. You know, the infrastructure is not there to allow that to happen. And in fact, one third of Bangladesh is now underwater, in fact, uh, as of the last couple of weeks, because of these incredible, furious rainstorms that have been hitting South Asia. And South Asia right now has lost something like 1,400 lives with severe storms, where we've lost, you know, somewhere around 200 between the severe storms that we've seen in the last two or three weeks. So, you know, it's devastating across the board, but it's really devastating in the poor countries of the world. So, the bottom line, however, is that there's no escaping this. And even if you have a car that you can hop in, well, guess what? Houston cannot evacuate. You may have noticed Houston was not evacuated because they tried that 
during Hurricane Rita, and more people died trying to evacuate in the traffic jams from the heat and running out of gas, and mitigation and adaptation is not an option. You cannot push back against these problems. You cannot control them. We really have to go to the essence of what they are. So I'm going to jump here, because I know time is moving on, to um, kind of some of the things that we can do. And you're going to hear a lot about really wonderful things that people are doing throughout this conference. But I'm going to throw a few things into the mix here. Because a historic crisis is also an historic opportunity. Discontent is off the charts, whether it's jobs, student debt, the skyrocketing cost of health care, immigrants facing deportation, the disaster of the war on terror, whatever, you know, it's, it's not working out so well for us. With the military usurping something like 54% of our discretionary budget, we don't have the dollars to deal with our needs here at home. So there's a huge amount of discontent if we can only manage to get the word out and to network to make that happen. So I want to just underscore that it's time to really think big. Little changes around the margins are not going to fix this. This is kind of a Hail Mary moment. The uh, darkness is kind of closing in if allowed to continue on its current path, and whether that's nuclear war or whether it's climate change. What's happening on the Korean Peninsula is not an aberration. This is exactly where the system of war, a foreign policy based on economic and military domination, and nuclear weapons takes us. Korea may be the first instance in the modern era of this kind of a conflict, but it's going to happen over and over because non-proliferation doesn't work. More and more countries will have nuclear weapons because it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for some to have the means of basically ruling the world and others not to have. And that was part of the original agreement, that uh, it was only a temporary measure and we were going to be working diligently towards abolition. And I want to make sure that everybody in the room here and in the conference knows that just this week, 51 countries have signed the new nuclear ban treaty that makes nuclear weapons illegal for once and for all. So it's not just North Korea. It's not just North Korea who should pack up their nuclear weapons. Likewise, it's the United States and the nuclear umbrella. When we talk about denuclearizing the peninsula, it means all of us. This is a two-way street. So just real quickly, the Korean conflict is really a poster child of U.S. militarism combined with nuclear weapons. If you thought regime change was a disaster in the Middle East, throw in great powers, namely China and Russia, to that equation and nuclear weapons, and it is a no-go. In fact, Seoul, where 25 million people live, is within striking distance of nuclear weapons as well as conventional weapons. We cannot allow war to take place on the Korean Peninsula. It is not rocket science to say that we must use negotiation, not escalation. In fact, negotiation has worked before, both with North Korea 
uh, contrary to the prevailing propaganda out there that we're hearing that, oh no, it doesn't work, they're much too crazy. In fact, it has worked successfully throughout the 1990s. It's working right now with Iran in spite of Trump's efforts to try to demonize that deal. And it worked coming out of the Cold War. So we should not allow ourselves to be bullied (laughs) like the rest of the world here into resorting to solutions being foisted on us by the military-industrial complex, who is the one party who stands to benefit from the path that we're on heading towards nuclear conflict on the peninsula. We can solve this just using our vision, our values, and sitting down and having plain old basic human dialogue. There's a lot to discuss. North Korea, as well as Russia, as well as China, have put negotiations on the table and have said that if we will freeze these war rehearsals, they're not war games, they're perfectly serious. They rehearse invasion and decapitation in a climate in which we have been threatening North Korea with a first strike by nuclear weapons for decades. So any regime in their right mind is going to develop nuclear deterrence. Even Dan Coates, director of national intelligence, said as much himself. What we're facing here is basically deterrence against U.S. nuclear weapons. So if we will all put our weapons down, we can solve this and ensure that we have a future to live with and on, and a planet that we can live on. So I'll just conclude here by saying that this is not rocket science. This is plain old basic human values, human vision, and it is broadly supported out there, even in spite of the endless propaganda that people have been subjected to. Vast supermajorities of the public repeatedly say they want negotiations, they do not want conflict, they do not want to resort to either bombing or nuclear weapons or ground troops in North Korea. This can be done. It's up to us to figure out how to get the message out because if it gets out there, it will prevail and it will be heard. So again, you know, just remember, forget the lesser evil, fight for the greater good, like our lives depend on it because they do. We can have an America and a world that works for all of us. The power to create that world is right here, right now, at this conference. It's in our hands. Let's make it so. Thank you very much. You just heard voices of those participating in No War 2017, a conference held in Northwest D.C., September 22nd through 24th. And that last speaker was Green Party presidential nominee Jill Stein. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance from the nation's capital coming from Pacifica Radio. And that will do it for today's show. It is vitally important that we all insist on facts and accountability from policymakers and news organizations. Only with the correct information can we make sense of our world, seek understanding, and achieve social change and justice. I want to thank my guests today, Janine Jackson, and also thanks to Chantel James for her reporting this week. And thank you for listening. You can reach our show at onthegroundshow.org, where you can listen to all of our shows. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On The Ground Show. I'm Esther Averam. Keep raising your voice. Peace.
Oh, <laughs> my 